Well, Romans 11 is the end of a section of Romans. 9, 10, and 11 are one section of Romans, and we've been dealing with that over the past few weeks, and we'll be wrapping that up today, Lord willing. And then we get to chapter 12, and the entire book uh, takes on a more uh, practical tone, if you will. Uh, How do we apply these truths? We've been diving into some deep doctrinal truths over the past several months as we've looked through uh, Romans 1 through 11. And uh, so next week we'll be looking at chapter 12 and and see how we might uh, apply these things. Of course, we've been trying to make an application all along, but chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 are of a more practical nature. Uh, if you will. Of course, theology is always practical. And as we come to this passage today, you might think, well, what does this have to do with us? He's talking about the Jews. But I think we'll see uh, that this speaks to us as well, even if we are are not of Jewish descent. Let's hear God's word from Romans chapter 11. I as then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, A member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that what what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Lest let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they may, might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, 
contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel till the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. But the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience... So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he, may ha that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his, are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, worship is why we gather together each Sunday. We sing, we pray, we make statements of belief on occasion, we commune with God, we listen to his word to us, with the attitude of submission to his will. We're saying that God is worthy. Uh, he's something to be celebrated. He's something to be, to be worshipped. So we're coming into God's presence to make a statement of the, the greatness of God and, and to celebrate it. Now in the last few verses that I just read here in chapter 11, Paul breaks forth into spontaneous worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, etc. To him be glory forever. Amen. This doxology that he lifts up to the Lord here. The question I have for you today is, what has he been writing about that so fills his heart that he just breaks forth into praise of God? That's what we want to explore here this morning. There's a lot here and. If you ever read a commentary on these verses, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled. But we're just going to, I'm going to give you an overview today, and I've given you an outline. Hopefully that will help you understand where I'm going with all this. I'm going to take the, the view of the drone as it flies over, chapter 11, to put it in today's parlance. So what has he been writing about that makes him burst forth in worship? The question Paul Addresses here in chapter 11 builds on what he's been discussing in chapters 9, uh, chapters 9 and 10. And that is, the question is, that he's been dealing with is, has God rejected his people, the Israelites, the Jews, to whom, as it says in Romans 9, 4, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises? It's an important question. It's an important question because it speaks directly to God's character. God made promises to ethnic Israel, which he did most certainly. We read all, all about them throughout the Old Testament. If God made promises to ethnic Israel, and these promises have not been kept as it, as it appears because of 
the unbelief of the Jews in Paul's day and even into our day. If that's true, then how can we be sure the Gentiles won't get the same treatment? Now, Paul's been talking about all the wonderful promises of God, the gospel of grace. How can we be sure that God's word can be trusted? How can God be trusted if he made promises to the Jews and now they have rejected God? And God has rejected them, it seems like. Well, the answer Paul arrives at in this chapter as he answers that question makes him worship. And I hope it will make us worship here today. Now, why is he asking this question? Well, the reality in Paul's day was that many of the Jews had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. The church was growing by leaps and bounds in the Gentile community, but the Jews general response was a rejection of the gospel. Certainly there were exceptions, but generally they had rejected the gospel and even sometimes had broken out in violent opposition to the gospel. You see that throughout the book of Acts. But Paul's answer is emphatic, and his answer in this entire chapter can be summed up in a few points. By no means has God completely rejected his people. By no means has God finally rejected his people. But salvation that God provides for Jew and Gentile is completely dependent on God's plan, the plan that he has for Jew and Gentile. It's all dependent on God's plan, his mercy, and his electing grace. And we all should respond in humility and faith and, yes, even worship for what we see here. Well, let's look at these points that we see here. In the first 10 and 11 verses, we see that by no means has God completely rejected his people, the people of Israel. Paul says that God's promises to the Israelites still apply because there's a remnant chosen by grace, a remnant, a, a peace chosen by grace. And first, Paul points to his own example. I'm a Jew, he says. Paul himself is an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, and he has not been rejected. Paul at one time was one of those Jews who violently opposed the gospel. In fact, at that time, he was probably the chief prosecutor of the church. He probably opposed the, the gospel more than any human being in his day. And he was present at the, the death, persecution, of Stephen, for example, and probably many others. He traveled around seeking out Christians to throw them in prison and put them to death. God had every right to reject Paul, but he doesn't. Because you remember, Paul's life was radically inter interrupted by the Lord on the road to Damascus as Paul was traveling to hunt Christians down and put them in prison and put them to death. God stopped him in his tracks and completely transformed the purpose and direction of his life. He went from being the chief destroyer of the church to the chief builder of the church. So, all the Jews are not rejected. Paul's a prime example. And of course, we could go back into the Old Testament and see the first disciples were certainly, uh, all those were Jews and, and the first Church in Acts uh, grew up amongst the Jews there in Jerusalem and Judea. And then it spread to the Gentiles. Well, then Paul moves from his own example 
And he's part of that remnant that, that has embraced Christianity. Uh, but he points back to a historical example in the life of Elijah. In the days of Elijah, there's, there was parallels between his day. You remember Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God in Israel during the reign of wicked Ahab and his wife, the evil Jezebel. And you remember that he opposed the prophets of Baal. The Israelites had fallen into worshiping this false god and he, he opposed the prophets of Baal on the famous showdown in the mountain and God showed his power and as he lit the fire on the altar with the sacrifice that had been covered with water and of course Baal never showed up. God demonstrated his power that day but even so Elijah got very discouraged because once they killed the prophets of Baal there on the mountaintop that really made Jezebel mad. And so she started hunting Elijah down to put him to death. And he, he was on the run. And he finds himself in a cave, hiding out. And the Lord appears to him and says, Elijah, what in the world are you doing here? And he says, the words of verse 3, Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. The attitude of Elijah here is what Paul's addressing. People look out and say there's no, no one left of the Jewish uh, ethnicity who are followers of God anymore. He was wrong. God replied, I have kept to myself, for myself, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant a chosen by grace. So the conclusion is stated clearly in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There is a remnant chosen by grace. So God has not completely rejected Israel. There's this remnant. Now the second half of the chapter tells us that God has not finally rejected Israel. He hasn't completely rejected Israel because there were Jews who embraced Christ, nor has he finally rejected Israel. Now Paul describes in verses 11 and, and on down through the end of the chapter. Uh, he describes what he calls a mystery in verse 25. Now when we use the word mystery, uh, we are referring to something that is unknown and, and at least somewhat baffling. You know, we might lose our keys and, and say, well, it's a mystery. It's a mystery wherever they are. I don't know where they are. I've left them somewhere. We're referring to something that's unknown. We can't figure it out. When we read a mystery novel like Sherlock Holmes, uh, we, we don't know who committed the crime. And we follow Sherlock and Dr. Watson as they unravel the mystery, look into all the clues, examine things. And we don't know who did it until the end of the book. The mystery is revealed. We enjoy reading about those things. Well, in the New Testament, the word is used as slightly different. When the word mystery is used, it's not something that is unknown, but rather the word mystery refers to something that was hidden but is now revealed. When Paul says, I tell you a mystery, he's referring to the reveal. Now, if, just to help you grasp this concept, if Paul were playing the board game Clue, which probably everybody's played, or at least maybe seen the movie, I'm not sure. But if Paul played the board game Clue and he used mystery the way he's using it here, he would say, 
I tell you a mystery. Professor Plum did it in the library with a candlestick. He's telling you the mystery, what has been revealed. That's what he's doing here, the second half of chapter 11. He's telling you something that was hidden before, something that people couldn't quite understand. But now he's telling you what's going on. He's telling you everything that's going to happen in reference to Jews and Gentiles. So there's a mystery. He's revealing something that was hidden, but is now not a secret anymore. And here's what he says, and I'll just, I'm just summing it up. Even though the gospel was first preached to the Jews, and, and some believed, the majority did not, and many became hostile to the gospel. This caused missionaries like Paul to move out from preaching in synagogues, which was Paul's practice early in his ministry, and even, even on into the ministry. Uh, he reached out to the synagogues first, until the Jews became violent against him. They rejected the message, and he decides to go exclusively to the Gentiles. Because of this, it was a good thing that came out of it, because the church became multi-ethnic. If Paul and the other uh, first missionaries had success only amongst the Jews, they would think, well, this is just a religion for Jews, because it came from the Jews. It's the root of everything. It came out of the Old Testament and God's uh, Israel. Our Messiah is Jewish. Everything comes from there. But God in his plan made the church multi-ethnic instead of only remaining Jewish. And so as the church is embraced by the Gentiles and becomes dominated by the Gentiles, well, what's going to happen is in turn, this is going to cause the Jews to become jealous or envious, he says, of the blessings of God's grace that the Gentiles are enjoying. And they say, well, that's for us. And hopefully, as Paul says, I'm preaching to the Gentiles to, to make my fellow Jews jealous so that they can understand what they're missing as they see it played out in the lives of Gentiles. And by God's grace, they too will embrace the gospel in larger numbers. This is how God is working it all out. So at some point in history, I believe we can expect a large number of ethnic Jews to embrace Christianity, either Maybe all at once in a great revival or increasingly so through the years. That's what seems to be indicated here at the end. God has this plan that he's working out between Jew and Gentile. God, God's people will ultimately consist completely of Jew and Gentile. In fact, the Bible elsewhere says that it's going to be people from every tongue and tribe and nation that are included in that olive tree that he's talking about, in the, in the people of God, the holy people of God. Now, to answer the question, what about all this causes Paul to break forth in spontaneous praise? Well, let's examine the last few verses beginning in verse 33 to answer that question. And, and, it, and here's the point that I'm going to make here. What causes him to, to praise is that this salvation that the Gentiles have embraced and that hopefully one day, and believing what Paul says will happen one day, that many Jews will come to embrace the, this salvation. It's completely dependent on God's plan, his mercy, and his electing grace. Those are things that are mentioned here in the passage. He says there in verse 33, Oh, the depth, as after he's explained all this that's going to happen, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. See, Paul praises several things here. God's 
wisdom and knowledge, His judgments, and His ways. God's wisdom and knowledge is deeply rich. His judgments are unsearchable and His ways are inscrutable or, uh, to give it another word, unfathomable. They're beyond our comprehension. He's been talking about God's plan and purpose for Jew and Gentile here in chapter 11. Uh, how God is working that out in history through Christ who died for sinners. And we see that his purpose and plan consists of mercy. God, the bottom line is, God desires to have mercy on all, Jew and Gentile alike. And when he says all, he doesn't mean everybody who's ever lived, because that doesn't agree with Romans chapter 2, for example, and, and many other places in Scripture. But what he's saying there is God desires to have mercy on all, both Jew and Gentile. Mercy is in his heart. It's who he is. God is a, a merciful God, and the mercy he extends is, is not based on our contributions. What does he say there? Look at verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? In other words, we don't tell God what to do. We don't give him advice. He's got a plan. He's the one who concocted all of this. He's the one executing it. He's the one doing it. We didn't give him any insights into how to go about doing this. And look at 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. God doesn't owe us anything. Uh, we didn't give uh, our obedience to him to earn his favor. We didn't do anything to earn his favor. God is a God of mercy. And what we're seeing here is to Jew and Gentile alike, God desires to extend mercy. And he's doing that in the world then. He's doing it in the world today. And that's why he ends the chapter with, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything is from him. He's the one that gives the salvation. Everything is through him. It comes through him, not through anyone else. And to him are all things, especially the glory, because it's, he gets all the credit for it. All the credit goes to him. And that's what's been mentioned throughout the chapter. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He set his love on his people, his chosen people, before time began. That's what foreknowledge means. It's not foresight, it's foreknowledge. And the word knowledge means intimate knowledge. Uh, Adam, and, Adam knew Eve and conceived and bore a son. It's the kind of intimate knowledge you talk about in a, in a husband and wife relationship. That's the same word that's used there. God intimately knows his people before they were ever created. And, it, and it's supported by verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen. God chose them by grace, not because of their merit, by grace, by his free gift, his love that he sets upon them. Verse 6, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. It's not based on you being good enough to earn God's favor. It's just based on God being merciful to you. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If you earn it, it's not grace. So it's completely from God. He gets all the credit. Now look down at verse 30. He mentions in verse 30, 31, and 32, mercy. For just as you were at one time disobedient, you Gentiles, to God, but now have received mercy because of the Jews' disobedience, they rejected the gospel, so Paul and other missionaries went to the Gentiles. 
Through their disobedience, you heard the message of salvation and God has shown you mercy. You received it from Him. You didn't earn it, you received it. He gave it to you. Now, so they too, verse 31, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. So as they see you receiving mercy, they're going to be jealous. That's what Paul wants. So that they would want to to pursue this mercy. So that they might receive it. As they see the mercy shown to you by God. It is shown to you by God. Verse 32. It's a wonderful verse. For God has consigned all to disobedience. Which is true. Jewish, Gentile, all of us are sinners. All of us have been disobedient. He's, he has pointed to, to the fact that we are all guilty. So he might have mercy on Jew and Gentile alike. Not just Jew, not just Gentile, but all. Jew and Gentile alike. He desires to have mercy. So God's word has not failed. That's what Paul's fighting here. God has not abandoned his people. He's not negated his promises. God is working things out despite the appearances that might speak to the contrary. So his people can rejoice and rest secure in his gospel promises of mercy and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Look at God acting in history. And and what is he doing? He's showing mercy to people. He's showering his grace upon us. Isn't that wonderful? Now the appropriate response finally and briefly is humility and faith. Well, first of all, faith. Paul explains in verses 7, 8, 9 that Israel, which he, he's going back to chapter 10, Israel was seeking a righteousness, but they were trying to get that righteousness credited to them through their own works. And he's saying, you, you don't get it that way. You get it through Christ. Christ provides all the righteousness that we need. Our righteousness is with him, with Christ. So Israel failed to obtain it even though they were seeking it. The elect obtained it, that remnant, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. See, they, they couldn't see or understand or grasp or want the gospel. And David says, and this is from Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. So for their unbelief, there's retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. If you look at Psalm 69, it's an interesting psalm. And it's got several references to Christ. It's a messianic psalm. Why is the psalmist calling for retribution? Just the verse before this one that he quotes here in Romans 11, it says, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Of course, that's referring, pointing to, to Christ on the cross. The psalmist calls for retribution after that and says, Why? For they persecute him whom you have struck down. Isn't that interesting? They persecute, this is David praying to God, they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Well, that's Christ. Christ was wounded for our transgressions. Christ hung on the cross for our sins. But now, as Paul saw in his life, 
The Jews were persecuting that. They, they did not believe in Christ and the great sacrifice that he had made for sinners. And there's retribution for rejecting Christ. Look at the warning of verse 17 for us. But some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. We owe a lot to the Jews. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. He's not saying that you can lose your salvation. He's saying there, don't be presumptuous. Don't be one of these people who think, well, I'm one of the chosen ones, so I'm one of the choice ones. You know, not only am I chosen, but I'm choice. I'm great, and God likes me because of how wonderful I am. That's unbelief. That's, not, that's faith in your own works. That's not faith in Christ's work. And he's saying, don't fall into unbelief like the Jews, because you'll be broken off like they were broken off because of their unbelief. We should continue to humbly rest on Christ alone and rejoice that the salvation that he provides is full and free. Don't be presumptuous. It all depends on God's mercy through Christ, 100%. For from him we have this salvation. It is through his actions in history, sending his son, and it's to him. Is to his glory forever and ever. Amen. Put your faith and trust humbly in the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your plan of salvation and how you're extending mercy to sinners, unworthy sinners such as we are. Lord, we pray that we would embrace that, put our trust in Christ alone for salvation, and that you would fill our hearts with gratitude daily for what you have done, for how you have made us your people, how you have grafted us in to that holy root and how we are nourished by it. Lord, make us humble, recognizing that it's not because we're such great people. We're sinners, but it's completely by your grace. May we rejoice in that today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.